Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. For our October episode, we have an in-depth interview with Peter Midgley about his new book of poetry, Let Us Not Think of Them as Barbarians. And we also have a long chat with Calgary mystery writer J.E. Bernard as she delves into the second volume of her Falls Mysteries series. She's going to be talking about where the ice falls. Peter Midgley is the author of several books of poetry, children's literature, and plays. He lives in Edmonton. Peter Midgley, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back, actually. You are here with a new book of poems, Let Us Not Think of Them as Barbarians. A wonderful title, and, and perhaps we'll, we'll go back to how that echoes throughout the, some of the work. But first and foremost, give us a All snapshot. Right. Um, when I, in 2011, I went on a trip back to Namibia, which is where I was born. And uh, one of the things I did then was keep a prose diary to write a prose book. But these fragments of poetry kept coming back at me in Afrikaans. And I knew I wouldn't use them in the in the book itself then, but I knew I couldn't leave them. And so in a way, this is the, shall I call it, the detritus from that journey. Uh, it's not really, it's become its own book. But I knew that I could tell the story of the Namibian genocide in different ways by using poetry rather than by using prose. And uh, I'm going to back up a second here. This is a book that is set in two wars primarily, the Namibian Wars of Resistance from 1904 to 1908, which also constitute the first genocide of the 20th century when 100,000 Herero people were decimated in over the course of four years until there were 14,000 left at the end. So uh, it is also one of the first uses of concentration camps as labor camps and the people on the in the labor camps were worked to death. Shark Island, for instance, had a 98% mortality rate. So I'm using that material on the one. And then in 1966, which actually happens to be the 10 months after I was born, the Namibian War for Independence started. And as a then living in South Africa as a white South African male, I was called up into that war and I became a conscientious objector. But it's so it deals with the war of resistance and the genocide and then the war of liberation on the other side and working through the complexity of how do you how do you work with the complexity of a country that you're born in but now are called on to fight against a, their liberation and how do you belong? Where do you belong? Do you belong in one country? Do you belong in another? Where all these kinds of issues, the issues of mobility, moving across borders, you're fighting wars across borders, across other in other countries. Um, and those are the kinds of issues that I wanted to address. So the book moves back and forward across borders, across spaces, and it traverses time as well in terms of the from the earliest colonial periods through to the War of Liberation and how we deal with the aftermath of those wars. So you've, talked, you've touched on a whole bunch of important things, and maybe we can unpack them 
a little bit at a time. So one of them is this this um, really powerful reality that in your lifetime, in that the country of your birth, um, there was there was a war of independence that came after a war of, you know, an another war where people were oppressed, decimated, a genocide. What was the what was the root? You're going to say capitalism, but you know <laughs> why? Why did they want to get rid of the Herrero in the first place? And then there's a there's a piece, right? Because then South Africa took over and didn't follow the UN yes decla- declaration, which led to the second war. Is that? In, in, am I following that? In in broad strokes, yes. The uh, I guess, yes, capitalism, and it was colonial expansion. It was the height of the age of imperialism, 1888, in the last throes of the scramble for Africa, as it is known, where European powers wanted to cut out there. One of the then useless bits of the continent was this desert country called Namibia, or then Southwest Africa, and the Germans laid claim to it, and... Uh, they'd left already or were pretty much on their way out by the time they discovered enormous mineral wealth in the country. The diamonds, for instance, uh, in the southern desert. But uh, so, yes, it it was imperialism. It was the drive to own and exploit Africa's riches that led to them colonizing it. But Namibia is a curious country because... The Germans encountered far more resistance than they expected. They uh, they went in with very colonial perceptions, but what they did not realize is that in the southern areas where they had been, the escaped slaves had crossed the border and had been. They were literate. They were had informal diplomatic relations with with the United Kingdom at that point or Britain at that point, and these. They had their own armies, fully fledged armies. So, where they were expecting, I don't know what, they got fully formed armies uh, on the other side. So, it became a very bloody conquest from the from the word go. And then, in this is what led in 1904 to them saying, "Right, we need to get them." And the general Lothar von Trotha actually gave the Vernichtungsbefehl which was the um, command to exterminate the people. And that is what led to the genocide. But the the resistance carried on for for four years at least. And yes, after that, that came the First World War and Germany was driven out of Namibia by the South African troops. So South Africa got Namibia as a mandated territory and had to lead it to independence. Instead, they annexed it as a fifth province and tried to incorporate it into South Africa. And this is where the United Nations Resolution 435 came in, where the UN, which is the League of Nations successor body, said, you will lead it to independence. South Africa said no, and that's where the war started. And so the second war, which was the year of your birth? A bit after that, 10 months after. Yeah. And where is Namibia now? It is, it is an independent country, and as with any young democracy, it has teething problems. There, is, there are regular elections. Um, the 
SWAPO, the party of the Liberation Army, is and has remained the dominant force. And yes, like every other problem, country post-independence is dealing with enormous problems, is how do we deal with this legacy? How do we deal with the the fact that we are dealing with people from all sides of these conflicts and with all histories? And how do we forge a new identity for ourselves, a new sense of belonging? How, how do we come to terms with the, with the horrors of the past, in fact? Um, and this is on all sides, I think. These, these are... These are serious questions. How do you deal with a country that has been exploited for 150 years and now you suddenly have to deal with issues of immense poverty uh, that do exist? It is, it is one of the poorest nations, despite the wealth there. It is one of the poorest nations in the world. So how do you deal with all of these issues? And the governments don't necessarily have the infrastructure or the, the support they need to to affect all the programs that are there. And having said that, there is an incredible amount of good that has been done. You know, a country like Namibia has complete social health for all its citizens. Mm. Um, and you begin to think if, if one of the poorer countries in the world um, can pull it off. Why can't we? Why can't we? Right. And one of the, the things that sings so loudly through the pages of this book is this incredibly fierce life force, this, uh, especially w when it comes to women, it, it seems to me like maybe I'm a woman and that I heard that voice louder, but you know this, I will dance anyway. Absolutely. You can beat me, uh, you can kick me, you can annihilate there's, Most of me, and yet we will dance. There's a line when I was in Namibia where a, a, a son woman, I, I was talking to her and she said, come dance. And she said, you know, dance. And I said, where were you? And she said, I was, I was here. I danced for the soldiers. I danced the revolution. And I asked her, so how did you do that? And her comment was bluntly, I danced it with titties and soul. <laughs> and I went, oh, all right. Well, 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 how do we do that then? And I'd always been um, in, amazed at the incredibly strong women that grounded the revolutions in South Africa. In the war for independence, the first battle took place at, uh, uh, at Olugulugumbashe and, um, when the soldiers left, the women remained behind and Priscilla to Hadeleni, for instance, would deal with the kids who were orphaned during the war and take them in. She is the one who would house the soldiers when they came across the border. She would hide them and take care of them. And then afterwards, the police would raid her house and she would face the brutality of the police and the security forces on the ground. I think of people like Helen Joseph in South Africa who spent most of her adult life under house arrest and the kind of resilience and grounding, absolute grounding of the struggle for independence that relied on these women. I think of women like Ruth First who was killed 
in a, a letter bomb incident where the South African government sent a letter bomb and she was blown up in a letter bomb. I I think of all of these women. I think of um, of so so many women who formed the backbone of the struggle in for independence in South Africa and in Namibia. The men were mobile. The men were moving. The men were fighting the battles. But so many of the women remained on the front ground. I think in terms of um, when I was at university and I was a conscientious objector in the end conscription campaign, how many women ran the organizations there, which gave us the freedom to stand on podiums and say, we object, we can disappear. They are the ones who often bore the brunt of of detentions rather than the men. Wow. So... It's the women who who give men the freedom of that mobility, and I felt it was important to to address that in some ways in the book. So yes, what you're seeing there is is very conscious. It's a a homage, if you wish, to to the power and the resilience of women during that struggle. There and the woman is deliberately not named in the book because women are so often not named, and I wanted to. I'm glad you saw that because that's what I wanted to bring across was the the power, the strength, the the fight in in women. That's where we get our strength from. It's a very powerful message. I, I, I was wondering throughout this interview because this book is so complex and beautiful and also cuts your heart out, but you've chosen to use poetry as a as the vehicle to tell these stories. And instead of us just talking about it, perhaps we could intersperse poems throughout the interview just to give a sense, the, the listener a sense of why it matters and also what it feels like. Absolutely. I'm Now it's a question of which poems. It's a short poem. And I, um, in it, I talk about a particular moment in the colonial history where the, the one of the last acts of colonial resistance was King Mandume Yandemofayo, who was the last king of the Kwanyama. And in 1917, during battle, he took his own life rather than submit to colonial rule. And that act of defiance, apparently, according to the legend, he said, gave his necklace to his mother, to, to his soldiers and said, give this to her mother, to my mother as a symbol of resistance, of continued resistance. And so I use part of that in this poem to to talk about. So he about. took his own life not as an act of giving up, but as an act of resistance. Of resistance there. So um, he talks about that. And then from the oral tradition as well, they talked about the the people who sang songs of praises would talk about the horses of hunger that they that they would go. So I took that image of the horses of hunger and of Mandume putting his rifle in there. So I'm going to read the horses of hunger, not put a gun in his mouth. Um, okay. the, we ride the horses of hunger, the horses of hunger, we ride them, the horses of hunger, we ride them on stomachs of air. Smoke curls from the nostrils of dragons, flared in anger, their breath smolders. Ah, these horses, these horses, these horses of hunger, their breath smolders in empty stomachs, fulminates as it leaves the body. Put a gun in my mouth, put a gun in my mouth so I can take aim. Put a gun in my mouth, this gun with which I fought alongside Mandume. Put it, put the gun, put the gun, put the gun in my mouth. Put Mandume's gun in my mouth. 
I want to fire with words when bullets forsake me. And a number of things happen in this poem in in sense of repetitions that become very important because I'm working with oral tradition that relies on repetition. But it became a means in the book for me to to work with oral traditions. I work with uh, a Xhosa oral tradition called uh, Izibongo, which are Xhosa praise poems. And I was looking at how can I work with those rhythms of the language that you get there and some of the things you can do there. How can I translate that into and a practice into English poetic practice? And and one of the means was through repetition. So throughout the book, I use a number of very key images, very key phrases, and I repeat them in slightly varied form throughout the book so that you build up this sense of repetition. And that's how I'm trying to echo a sense of language, a sense of tonality to try and create meter and rhythm through repetition rather than through a fixed metrical pattern as you would in traditional Western poetry. Yeah, as a reader, I really noticed that it was almost like being called into a dance. <clears throat> also, the the sounds, so, you know, some of the rep- the words that you repeat have a have a either a s- crack bone crack crack sound or a more uh, danceable exactly. sound. And I thought, is it me? But as I no, as I read through it, I thought, no, this no, is, it, this it, is very intentional. Absolutely, and it. And it, it pulls you along as a reader. Uh, and it was one way, for instance, that I could keep a narrative going because two, there are two, there are multiple voices here. There's a voice of ancestral peoples and the ancestral voices coming in and then two dominant character voices, one called Dragfoot and then the woman that keeps, again, a composite, these are all composite figures, but they... They keep coming through. And so there's this narrative, this relationship that develops through them. And repetition became a way of being able to follow through with their story and develop the story as we go. So I was very aware of the narrative and using repetition as a way to to push the narrative forward in the book. So all very deliberate, very conscious techniques. Now, why poetry? So poetry, because I can merge two images in a very surrealist way. There's an Afrikaans um, line that they always quote as surrealism, example of surrealism is the earth blue as an orange. And it's that fusion of two almost disparate images. And so saying rather than in that surrealist moment using two disparate images and forging them to create a surrealist image, can I take two different time periods and start melding them and moving through time. And that again is deliberate because I can't say colonialism is this time or that time and now it's independent and it's over. These things move over those times. The effects last. There's So I wanted to lose that sense of time and I could do that through poetry better than I could do it in a prose narrative. Because it's the essence of poetry to cut to the most vivid, the most... Absolutely. Where the heart is actually beating rather than yeah. the whole so, path there. So it allowed me to get to, to talking about the issues in, in ways that I couldn't do in a linear narrative. I'm also curious about the responsibility that comes with being the other 
Um, I think you and I have, have talked about this many times over the years off radio, where when you come from somewhere else and you are the other, the weirdo, and you carry those stories, you, two things happen to me. You, A, see this world with different eyes, and you also hear how people talk about the world that you came from inaccurately. And there seems to be a sense of responsibility that comes through. Perhaps I'm projecting, but I could. I, I felt like the, the, the intricacy of the footnotes, for example, that come with some of these poems speak to that sense of responsibility. Don't, don't brand Africa as this crap hole place where there's no hope. You um, know, there, see the beauty, see the strength, see what's important. And I think more importantly, figure out what you can learn from it. Right. Um, there is, you, it, we, we dismiss this, the continent and the individual countries within the continent so readily. And we say this, but we say the same about Syrians who come here. And somebody once said to me at a conversation, I really don't mind immigrants coming in, but I wish they'd leave their problems at home. And well, no, <laughs> no, we, it is the fact that we are bringing our problems in a way here that enriches this country, that helps us, can help us in so many ways to address the problems that we are hiding and not talking about here. So yes, I'm talking about a genocide that happened a century ago in South Africa or in Namibia um, and in that part of the world. But call it by any other name, it is relevant to us here and now. We need to talk. So I use that as a metaphor to engage us to say, we need to start talking about what we did here. Right. And I say we because I, now, I am now here. So we have to talk about this. But I also write from, where I, from a history that I know and that I can formulate better than I can here. Because I have so much to learn here still. And I need to have those conversations. But come, let's have them. So um, as an immigrant, I, I, yes, I, I don't know if it's a responsibility uh, or even a, perhaps a duty or what the word would be. But there is definitely a sense of I have to dispel the myths that, you, that are generated about the places we come from. I have to show you what we could offer the world in terms of, of our thinking. If I think of, of the thought of someone like Robert Sobukwe, who was one of the first um, leaders of, of the Pan-Africanist Congress in South Africa and the movement of that, and I look at the thinking that feeds into that, how that cross-pollination happens, that feeds into the work of someone like, say, Martin Luther King and... You, you go in there and you say, what can we learn? We, we ignore these legacies. We ignore that thinking that has happened. But we can learn from them. It's time to go back. So I deliberately move into that. I try and incorporate that level of thinking into what I'm writing here. And hopefully through these discussions saying, let's think about the world in new ways. There are different ways to view the world. And what can we learn from and those differences? And what can we learn? It, I, 
learn from the differences and how can we learn to transcend them? What can we do? So that's, so yes, I do feel that and I will always keep addressing that is because I do think that we, we're so big about talking about what Canada can offer for other places, but we forget what the other places offer Canada. Right. Absolutely. And I, I'm using words like other, but we come from here. People's, the world is here and we need to acknowledge that. The world is all intricately absolutely woven through. We can't separate yeah. it, the fabric of it. Yeah. So, so yes, I do feel that as a um, it incumbent on me to to have these conversations, and they're not always easy conversations to have. They're they're often difficult because it means that you are constantly in a position where you have to adjust adjust to to new worldviews, to new ways of thinking, to incorporate new ideas into your own life. It's as simple as saying, in, in, on a practical way, is making a turban part of the RCMP uniform and acknowledging that that, is, that does not in any way diminish Canadianness in, in any way or shape or size. And yet... It enriches it, is, it. It enriches it. It shows us that we're evolving and growing as a country. Um, it is, yes, we can go with land acknowledgements, um, but we need to find ways to, to not just make that statement at the beginning of a, of a meeting. Well, but tokenism actually, becomes meaningless. Exactly. So how do we integrate that into the way we live? How do we, how do we respect the earth? How do we pay... Um, homage and deference to the earth and tread on it lightly in ways that will that will honor the legacy of this place and it that starts with curiosity doesn't it it starts with curiosity and it starts with a willingness to to move your own points of view and not to see yourself as the center of the world so we've talked about some really heavy topics but i don't want to get i, I don't want the listener to be left with the sense that perhaps they should read this book because it's an important topic, but they really don't want to because it's too heavy. And the the way that the poems come off the page, the language of them and the vivid images, it, it's about a, a very sad topic, uh, gut-wrenching, but it's these are not brutal poems. Give us another taste of... Of what you've done. Can I read a slightly longer poem? Please. All right. A heart should not beat like this. A heart should not beat like this. Not this loud. The thrill of muscle dancing counterpoint to the body. He rests his head on the pillow. Feels her muscles contract. His ears alive. She sighs uneasily. He reaches out his hand. Feels her skin on his fingers. Runs his hands over her wet body, feels the stutter of her scars, feels her black body rising, the growl of abrasive machines hollowing her veins, hyenas foraging along the beach. No heart should beat this loud, echo this loud, unless cut from its cage, it rages, 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 cut from its cage, it rattles and rages beneath him, the clammy fingers of backhoes scraping her skin. And he cries. In the bay, tankers hover, collect the black blood oozing from her chest. 
Black as Diaz's woman she is inside, black as blood from these veins, black as woman. He runs his fingers over her welts, reading their tender braille, sees the effulgence of unseen words that roll like tumbrils from the sea. He bends down, braids her hair into a necklace, feels the texture of her hair against his skin, smells the earth of it. Mopani seeds dance like butterflies from trees into waiting arms. He lays the tangled wings against her heart, a necklace of seed and flesh and bark and skin, skin and bark and flesh and seed, a rampart of hearts against her tattered body. He listens to the words of Mandume speaking to his mother. He listens to them beat from her chest. Take this necklace as a sign of my words. Hang it against your body. Hang it against your body in defiance of these guns that breed the horses of hunger. Beware of the gifts they bring, these hollowed horses that run through our land. Had I but lived a short while longer amid desert and stone, had I but lived longer. Oh, he dreams. He dreams of tasting once more the wail of the antelope in the wind, of walking the verges of the world, of yelling at the skin of the soil. He dreams of a gentler skin to clothe his naked body in. That was Peter Midgley reading from Let Us Not Think of Them as Barbarians. Thank you very much for coming into the studio today. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for, the con- for having a conversation about these issues. J.E. Bernard's first book in the Falls Mysteries series, When the Flood Falls, won the unhanged Arthur Ellis Award in 2016. Her novella, Maddie Hatter and the Gilded Gage, was an Alberta Book of the Year and a 2018 pre-Aurora finalist. Jane lives in Calgary. J.E. Bernard, thank you so much for coming into the CJSW Writer's Block studio this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. You're here. I don't think you've been on our show over the years before. So, and you have all kinds of interesting projects. Um, particularly, you've just launched the second volume in your Falls Mystery series. The uh, book is called Where the Ice Falls. And last year, the first book came out, When the Flood Falls. They, I am a lover of mystery. Uh, your books kept me up at night. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm so glad that you're here to tell us a little bit about uh, this series, the latest book in the series in particular, and perhaps later on in the show we can also get into a little bit of some of your other series because you are multi-talented. So, mysteries. Um, you have rabid fans of all sorts of mysteries. Where on the bookshelf in the mystery store would Where the Ice Falls fit? And who would want to read it? Tell us a little bit about the story. Oh, well, where I like to think that it would be in a mystery bookstore organized by what authors are like what authors, I would love to think it is beside Gail Bowen and Louise Penny. Right in between those two, because it's set right here in the prairies, like both of them are very geographically centered in their mysteries, and because there's strong focus on the people. I, As a fan of both of those authors as well, I would say that's a perfect place to put yourself. And the other cool part is that 
all of those, uh, all of you have a thread of really interesting, strong characters, especially strong women. And I would say the setting becomes as much a character as some of the people in very different ways. The falls. Yes. People want to know what falls we're talking about. And to me, falls has always been almost as much metaphorical as physical. The falls are the elbow falls upstream from Bragg Creek. The story, most stories of these characters' lives mostly take place downstream from the elbow falls. And the flood, of course, when you think of elbow falls and flood, you think of 2013, where the elbow falls was scoured right down to bedrock. The geography of the valley changed forever. And that's pretty much where I started these characters' lives, is, is the in moment place. In where, place. Yeah. And, and the moment. Mm-hmm. I loved how um, some of the elements, so in, in When the Flood Falls, it was that that dread, that recurring dread that we all as Calgarians now feel. Well, not just Calgarians, any of us living in the, the floodplains of those mighty rivers feels it. Since the flood of 2013, you know, June is a month where somewhere in the back of your mind, the minute you hear the rain, you start to feel that latent fear, which comes out so strongly in uh, when the flood falls. And then in in where the ice falls, it is the, it's that inevitable power of winter and how vulnerable we all are. So... Beautiful job on how you let nature show its, not only its beauty, but also its potential menace. Thank you. I I live and breathe in kind of an attunement with whatever is going on in nature around me. Uh, my moods change with the, the amount of light or dark, the clouds, the breeze, the scent of trees. And for me to write Something more sterile would be really difficult. Um, in When the Ice Falls, or Where the Ice Falls, part of it is set in an office building. And at the time I first thought about this book, I thought it would, there would be more in a Calgary office building. So much of the understory, understory the p- underpinnings of this story, happen in that office building. And yet, I couldn't write it there. It was just too sterile an environment. Interesting. So it kind of became the the threat that hovered, or the place that you might find an answer, but it hovered in the background, where it was nature kind of leading them and giving them different clues, but also informing the lives of your characters in a in a big way. In both books, whether it was the things that you do in winter or the things you're trying to navigate in winter, oh my God, my kids are coming home, I need to show them a good time because it's Christmas. All these little micro pressures that we all feel, um, your characters also lived, in addition to having to solve these horrible, terrible stories, <laughs> the mysteries themselves. Crime. I, th- I think one of my um, founding themes for the series is there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken on at the flood and so on and so on well in the f- the the first book of course that's a very real flood that they're worried about but it's also about the tides in people's lives 
you know, the the events that small in themselves build towards not a, necessarily a crescendo, but the in, unstoppable force of a tsunami. Mm-hmm. And that happens both, I think, for my series characters and for the people who are the outsiders in any given situation. Yeah, and how that one little decision you make leads to another decision leads to, oh, now now the tide is pulling, the riptide's got me because of that one little thing. And I think in the Calgary area, we're all very attuned to, for example, the world price of oil, which is a tide that comes in and goes out unpredictably. We have no control over it. So much of our daily life is affected by factors beyond our control. Right. That we're far from the oceans, but we have our own tide here that we must pay attention to. Right, yeah. So before we get to into all of the 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 other threads of things that are happening in your in your books. Let's talk a little bit about the main characters. Give give people a sense of who who Jane and Lacey and Dee are. Okay, well, the series actually started long, long ago when my best friend from high school left the RCMP. And she came out of the RCMP after 10 years with a tremendous um, burden of unspoken stories and emotions and trauma that she had lost the words for. She went in as a fairly calm, straightforward English major who was, you know, very very physically fit, and she came out traumatized in ways she couldn't even recognize. She spent the first year literally emotionally frozen. And so when Lacey, in the first uh, chapter of When the Flood Falls, walks up to Dee's house, that's where she is in her mind. She's completely uh, cut off from the ebb and flow of her own emotions, and all she feels is the irritation of walking up to a door and nobody answers. Right. And it takes a lot for her to get past that. And, and she's a very battered, her soul is battered. So she is. she was carried a long way on some rough water and, and comes to her friend's house. And is trying to start over, right, in the yeah. first book. She is She is definitely more than she wants to realize, because I think we all have this as women, and, you know, she's in her 30s, her first marriage has fallen apart, her first career has fallen apart, her financial stability is gone. She's at a very low point in her life, and she's really looking for succor. And then this, this quiet hamlet with the tall trees and the mountain breezes and the sunshine seems like it should be a very peaceful place but she hasn't been there for more than half an hour before she realizes something is really wrong here Mm -hmm. and that drags her right back to the place she was hoping to escape from the need to be investigative the need to be the cop the protector the the watcher yeah yeah Yeah. and for d then her friend d is also at um vulnerable points and crossroads. Dee is one of those women that we, I think we all know whose life looks perfect on the outside. You know, she has beautiful blonde hair, 
artfully streaked. She has gorgeous business clothes. She has a high-powered career, a lovely home. She had, until very recently, a very good-looking husband who was, you know, showed up on her arm at all the right events and so on. But D too, is at a point where she's realized that all the things that she thought she had solidly in place in her life were built on a very fragile footing. And now she's recovering from an injury. She's recovering from her marriage breakup. Uh, she's in financial trouble. And she doesn't have the depth of friendships around her that so many women who were less fortunate um, can, can lean on. Right. So D2 is in a very isolated place. It's a different isolated place than Lacey. And I think one of the things that makes that relationship work is they have those old times to go back to. You know, when you, every person, we have a good history or a bad history with someone. Mm-hmm. And they had a good history, and they did things. They hiked the Algonquin Trail together. They got drunk together in university. They you know, went through breakups with boyfriends and crushes and you know, terrible semesters and... Yeah, they have those cornerstones or yeah. touch points still. And I think we can go back to those people if we've left them on a reasonably good note. Right. At any point in our lives and say, I need you. Can you be here? And there, yeah, there's a balm in that, a healing. It's almost like they're saying, remind me who I was before I was broken. That's a brilliant observation. We all need that. Right. And I'm so glad that somebody sees that in those characters. And then there's Jane, or or Jan. Jan, I'm sorry, Jan, who, on the surface, she is, you know, she's dealing with a terrible illness, and yet inside she is the one who is perhaps least broken. She is the observer, the, the, the one who was always helping them go back on track, it seems to me. Well, I have... Um the same illness as Jan has in the book. And in a sense, writing those parts of the story were cathartic for me. Um, I, I too lost my career to the illness, and I too had to watch the world and the people I cared about go on and live their lives while I was trapped at home. So uh, to me, that's a very personal um, storyline. But Jan also tries things that I didn't try, medications, treatments, supplements. Uh, but I, one of the things that, that is really me in Jan is the looking out the window. Mm-hmm. And how you know you're a lifelong crime fan is when you look out the window uh, from your chaise every day and you watch the next door neighbor's new boyfriend come home and you think, he looks like a serial killer. I wonder, <laughs> I really wonder I'm going to write down his license plate number just in case. (laughs) Exactly. And I watched that man go in and out of that house frowning several times a week. And I worried about my neighbor, what she was getting into. And I know she might be listening. So Please tell me she didn't wind up murdered. No. And when I got healthier and was able to actually leave my house and be outside, I did meet the neighbors and I found out. The reason he looked so stressed every day is because he's a high school vice principal. 
And every day when he came home, he had been dealing for eight or ten hours with recalcitrant teenagers and stressed out teachers and administrative duties and so on. And how he worked it out was not burying bodies in the backyard. <laughs> Handily. He, yeah, thank you. He fixes bicycles for children uh, in need. Oh, how neat. He takes in donated bicycles and he repairs them in his garage and then he puts them out to agencies to give to children who would otherwise not have a bicycle. So he's really a very nice man. And I sometimes feel really bad that I suspected him of being a serial killer, but that's just the way my mind works. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so neighbor, if you're listening, I think Jane Bernard has decided you're safe from your husband. And I seriously apologize for thinking such terrible things about that very nice man. But this is writers, isn't it? I mean, any writer I know has a lurid imagination. And we are not only watchers, but we weave things into the watching. We weave, yes, we definitely weave. And I like to tell this story because it's a callback to one of the two people in my family who encouraged me in this whole thinking about people as potential killers is my aunt, my father's sister, used to lend me her mysteries, her golden age, Agatha Christie's and all that. Several years ago, well, quite a bit more than several years ago, um, because I'm older than I like to think I am, (laughs) we... um, we were walking through Bouchard Gardens in Victoria mm-hmm. in the, on a summer evening and it down in the quarry, surrounded by rocks and scents and beautiful plants, artfully lit with colored lights gleaming under and around them. It's a wonderful, magical experience just to be there as dusk has settled. My aunt strolled along the path and she stopped by a vibrant red Japanese maple. Behind it, just against the quarry wall, was a deep, deep shadow, and she said, Would you look at that? What a wonderful place to hide a body. (laughs) So it's a genetic thing for you. Oh, yes. It's in the blood. (laughs) So, So there's so many layers in these books. So many human layers. There's the, there's the layer of, Let's tell a rip-snorting good crime story set somewhere, you know, for, for those of us who live here, somewhere familiar. For those of us who don't live here, all of a sudden Calgary and Bragg Creek and these places become exotic and yet familiar at the same time because you're leading us by the hand and showing us the secrets. But there's also... A whole bunch of threads of story where I feel like, despite how entertained and enthralled this, you know, we are in it, we're learning something as we are going along. We're learning, for example, or, or, or they're maybe not learning, but we're not looking away from some things that are really important for people to understand and be able to talk about. Abuse. Um, what happens to women in male-oriented careers, what happens to people who have chronic illnesses, and how society looks at them, perhaps really unfairly sometimes. Um, 
And you do that without it being pulling the reader out of the story, which I think is a hell of an achievement. <laughs> Thank you. But what's important for you as a writer about using, you know, something that can often be erroneously and stereotypically considered something light, you know, like a genre, a book out of a genre, what's important about that? And yet you're talking about things that are fundamentally important to our society. I didn't set out to be that writer. I set out to write f slightly humorous traditional mysteries. But when you have MECFS, which is the, the, the illness that Jan and I share, you, you ha you're trying to run your entire physical and mental being on about 10% of the energy produced by a normal human being. And so you have to be very choosy. What you do has to be important in order to invest a significant amount of that very limited energy in it. And so when I started thinking about the character of Jan and the character of Lacey and the character of Dee, I thought, I can't write about the surface of these people's lives. I must write about what's underneath that, the things that people don't see. Now, for me, with MECFS, it's called an invisible illness. Um, there are 580,000 Canadians with this illness. 25% of us are so ill, we never leave our houses. Um, it's really a catastrophic yes. thing to happen in it, your life. It's a catastrophe. It's like an unfolding train wreck. Um, sometimes it hits you very quickly. One week you're fine, the next week you have a small fever, and the third week you're in bed for the next 10 years. Uh, for me, it happened in my final semester of theater school. I was very physically fit. I was on the go all the time. I got exposed to some chemicals and I got a virus at the same time. My, my immune system overset and my life spiraled right down to almost zero in three months. Wow. For other people, it takes a lot longer to deteriorate to that extent, but we all end up in the same place. And there's no cure. There's no cure. There has just three weeks ago been um, Canadian National Canadian Institutes for Health Research has an office now dedicated to coordinating ME research in Canada. And so we have great hopes that there will be some strides um, in treatments available for us. But partly I wanted to write about that, and partly I wanted to write about other issues that aren't visible to people. Mm-hmm. You know, when you meet someone on the street and you assume that their life is all together. Well, having ME and still looking fairly normal on the few occasions when I left home made me keenly aware that everybody has a story. Right. Everybody's life Everybody has, has a mask and everybody has the writhing things underneath the mask. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do with these books is to say to the reader... Yeah, your life looks different on the outside, but it's okay that it's not okay on the inside. Right. It doesn't make you wrong or bad or subpar as a human. Our lives on Facebook aren't the same lives that we live 
in the privacy of our own home when our bills are overdue and our kids are falling apart and our health is crashing and our marriage is under strain. Right. You know, we all have those lives. And if you can find a good friend, whether it's a new friend like Jan or a really old friend like Dee, to just be there to be the touchstone and say, you are okay, we'll get through this. And and put the mask down once in a while with those safe people so that you can start to heal a little bit. One of the just the uh, social justice things, I guess, categories in your book is that in the second book, um, the Dee's mom, Dee's mom is is has made this announcement that about you know she's she's old she's not well, and she's decided that she she has the right to decide when and how she's going to end her life. Talk to me a little bit about that thread in the book. That's probably the most personal thread in the second book. You know, although there's a Me Too warning, and there are some scenes in that book that my psychological consultant um, determined should, should have a Me Too warning, and also suggested that we list the resources for sexual assault survivors at in the, the back, back of the book. book. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of emotional weight for me in the assisted dying thread. Um, when I started the book, the law had recently changed, and I wanted to discuss some of those issues around medical assistance in dying, partly because my father had had a quite severe stroke the year the year before, and had told me quite straightforwardly then that he never wanted to be in a position to linger. And when he said that, the law had not yet changed. But he said, you're a crime writer. You could fix this for me. And I said, I can't take that responsibility. Right. Um, But I will support the law change. So he held on and he did a lot of physical therapy and he came back for several years after that. But he was weakening and he had several health conditions that were getting worse. And he said, there's going to come a time when we're going to have to make this call and I want your help. So we began to talk to my mother about the possibility and our children about the possibility that their grandfather would choose medically assisted. medically assisted dying. And we made sure that we knew where the websites were and who the Dying with Dignity people are who can help explain the process and walk with him through the process. Mm-hmm. And um, he toughed it out at home for a long time, probably longer than he would have in retrospect. But finally he said, That's it, I have to go to the hospital. And there was no doubt in anybody's mind then that he was going in for the last time, that he was going to apply for assisted dying. And by this point, I had already planned out the book based on what I thought my reactions would be. Mm -hmm. What I hadn't counted on was that one of my writing mentors and one of my most artistic friends who was partly a consultant for the art um, issues in the series, both were diagnosed with cancer. Both got terminal diagnoses the same year. 
So suddenly, medical assistance and dying discussions were everywhere in my life. Right. And I talked to them and their families and their nurses and my doctor and my father's doctors. And the hardest part of writing that book was separating my reactions from the characters' reactions. But I also tried to give an overview of some of the contextual issues that anybody who is going to look into this will face. Right. What are your family members' um, religious views on the subject? What are your doctor's pros and cons views on the subject? Um, It's very unlikely it will be your own doctor who will perform the procedure. There are doctors who specialize uh, in that area now. But your doctor should know what you think about that. And And you need to... I think one of the big messages that came through as the reader is that it's necessary to have the conversations in the family and in the friend group for that matter. And it's far better to start sooner before things get critical. Right. Um, I've talked to a few people who were absolutely blindsided by the fact that their parent wanted or asked for this. They mm-hmm. There was nothing in their life that would prepare them. But I've also talked to a lot of seniors who are celebrating this change in the law. They were the people who sat with their elderly parents for sometimes decades. Helplessly watching. Helpless. And they don't want to be that helpless. Yeah. Yeah. We want the opportunity to go out with some dignity at a time and a place of our choosing. And of course, for me, being chronically ill, that's also, you know, an issue for me. Yeah. At what point will I be incapacitated enough that I will want to be able to say, no, I have lived with this long enough? Yeah, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it was very, very gently and also very uh, authentically handled. You could really feel the different characters experiencing it from different angles. Thank you. I really wanted that to come across. Thank you so much for coming into Writer's Block. J.E. Bernard with the Falls Mysteries. Thank you. Celebrating its 24th year, WordFest connects Calgarians with life-changing experiences at more than 180 events with 120-plus artists year-round and at the Imaginarium, their fall festival, from October 14th to 23rd. This year, WordFest has enticed more than 70 of the world's tastiest writers to come to Calgary, and the week is going to be so much more than a WordFest. The WordFest 2019 Imaginarium authors include Kale Atkinson, Billy Ray Belcourt, Lynn Cody, Michael Crummy, Cherie Dimeline, Emma Donahue, Marina Endicott, Humble the Poet, Lyndon McIntyre, Amy McKay, Ayelet Sabari, Richard Van Camp, Joshua Whitehead, Lenny Zumas, and so, so, so many more. Check out wordfest.com to get your tickets, because Imaginarium events are happening now. And remember, Writers Guild of Alberta members receive a 20% discount toward their choice of either a festival pass or tickets to any regular events and workshops during the festival. Check out the website and enter the promo code WGA during checkout process on wordfest.com to apply for the 20% discount.
Thank you for listening to Writer's Block. The opening and closing theme for our show is Cloud Chaser by local band 36. You can hear more music from them at whatis36.com.